Great to be here, everybody. Good to see everybody. Everybody doing pretty well today? You guys ready? Go for it. We're uh, starting a new series today, kind of getting back to our style a little bit, because for a while here, we've been just doing things topically. Uh, The way we typically do it at Crossroads is we just dive headlong into a book, and as a community, we study it, we digest it knowing that as we um, literally take God's word into our hearts, that God's going to use it through the power of his spirit. You know, the word of God with the spirit of God making us into the people of God. And so uh, the book that we're going to study is Numbers. Hey, come on now. (laughs) Oh, good. I'm glad I got a couple howlers. Um, Let me just first talk about how we're going to approach this book. Um, I'll get to the why of why we're studying this book in a second. Going back already before the time of Jesus, when the Israelites didn't have a temple, which is how they worshipped God, they're like, how do we approach God? And they took what they had, the words of God, and saw that, what God really wanted was a people who learned to become like him and that the way they became like him was through his word. So already before the time of Jesus, they started a reading schedule that put all of God's people reading the same thing to get through the word of God in one year. And today it's called Torah portions. Um, It's... Each week, there's, there's a portion that God's community is going to read. I'm kind of jealous of this, if you want to know the truth, because you could go to a synagogue, synagogue would have been yesterday, Shabbat, any place in the world, Tokyo, New York City, Jerusalem, they'd all be studying the same Torah portion. And it's not just what was preached that weekend, but it's what everybody in the community would have been reading And so that's how we're going to approach Numbers, is according to how it's laid out in its Torah portion, with the understanding that on Sunday mornings, um, yeah, the person that's up here like me today is going to teach and and, and expound on some things uh, that we've worked hard and study, through our study, uh, but that there's going to be a partnership, because the Word of God is not something that's supposed to just be in the hands of pastors, we're a kingdom of pastors and priests. And so we're going to put that before you. Uh, We have the schedule. I have several piles of them up here if you didn't get one. Uh, This lays out the Torah portions, uh, when they're going to be preached, and today we have the first four chapters of Numbers. Now why Numbers? Because we're going to, now I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview of this book. Um, Anybody remember our theme verse? I'm kind of smiling at myself. I'm the kind of person that when I do something, like, I kind of forget about it three weeks later. I haven't forgotten. We have a theme verse this year that we're going to put before us. What is it? First Peter. Does anybody want to say it out loud? I just got back from Israel, and this was my style there. Anybody? First Peter. Yeah, please. Go for it, Dave. Yeah, right. <laughs> we are the chosen people, a holy 
We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that we should show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Awesome. And the next verse. Once we are not a people, but now we are the people of God. God first said those words about the people of Israel. Once you were not a people, but now you are my people, my chosen people. And numbers, because here's the question I want to ask. How does that happen? Because what, what is described there is total transformation. Once not a people, but now the people of God, chosen by him. A kingdom of priests, a, a, a royal nation, called to partner with God to redeem the world. How did that happen? Because this verse is now applied to us. Once we were not a people, but now we are a people, we are God's chosen people, a holy nation, to partner with God to redeem the world. The answer to that question of how that happened is the book of Numbers. Because Numbers is about a journey. Exodus tells us the journey from something, from Egypt. Numbers describes the journey to something, to the promised land. It's the journey from not being a people to being the people of God, a holy nation. Numbers as a book describes this space between Egypt and promised land. In fact, the first verse. In the Hebrew, the first clause of Numbers 1 verse 1 says, in the desert. And that's how they determine the title of their books. They take the first word or the first clauses, first clause of the book, and that becomes its title. What an unfortunate title we've given this book, Numbers. What if, it's, what if we chose the real title, The Desert? Because... Numbers tells us the story of God's people in this space between, in this no man's land, between Egypt and the promised land. And their journey is still our journey. It hasn't changed. It's still the same. We, we all journey from Egypt. We're all making our way to the promised land. Uh, the Bible says, out of Egypt I called my son. That applies first to Israel. Then the Bible's going to apply that to Jesus. Now it's applied to us because when God calls us, he's always calling us out, which is why every one of us today, if we are in Christ, we should be able to give testimony of how God called us out of Egypt. And Egypt in the Bible represents the world. It represents that comfortable, prosperous life with all its worldly pleasures, its comforts. And that's what Egypt is seduces us. It seduces our hearts. It, it, it seduces our appetites with, with momentary pleasures for the, for the sole purpose that it can name us, 
but so it can tell us who we are and why we are here. Through all the things that make Egypt, Egypt. Through power, through fame, through pleasure, through money, all those kinds of things. Because Egypt knows that once it can name us, once we start to find our identity and worth in Egypt, it owns us. And we become its slave. Which is why the Hebrew word for Egypt means to be walled in. It's something that we need to be set free which is why God needs to get us out of Egypt. But getting us out of Egypt is not God's end goal. God also wants to get us into something. He wants to get us into the land of promise. And biblically speaking, the land of promise is what we've been made for. It's living in that place where we know who we are. Once not a people, but now we know we are the people of God that he chose us to make us holy, to set us apart for this massive purpose of why we're here, to be a kingdom of priests, to partner with the living God to repair his world. Do you know that call? Do you know what you've been called into? Are, are, are you living out that call. Because then what the Bible shows us is that there's actually this space between Egypt and promised land, and that space is the desert. We talk a lot about desert. Crossroads now is a church that knows how much God loves the desert, the space between Egypt and promised land. And the reason why God loves desert so much is this is the place, the crucible, where he changes us, where he transforms us, where he can now say about us, once you were not a people, but now you're my people, a holy nation, partnering with me to repair a world that I love. And we've also learned at Crossroads over the years that, biblically speaking, the desert is, is more than just a place. Um, it, it, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for life. When, when life is difficult, when, when life is painful, uh, those seasons of life, when we lose things, when things are taken away from us, when it feels like we don't even know if we can make it through the week or let alone the next day. For some of us, we don't even know if we can take the next step. I just got back from Israel and was just in the desert. I was in the desert that we're even describing right now. I'm really not a demented person, I promise you, okay? But I do love to hike people through the desert um, where people literally want to stone me. Um, they do. They, 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 because... And you'll understand, there's rhyme and reason to this. Um, in fact, this group, I, 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 I thought they were stronger than what they were. <laughs> That's literally us in the desert. And I got them finally to a, a water that was flowing out of the desert. And, and this is what they did. They literally, like a bunch of beach whales, just <laughs> fell right into it. 
this lady right here in the front was just sitting there. I don't know if she was a little bit delirious, but she's like, wow, I've never been baptized before. And this lady right here is Erwin McManus's wife, and she's a pastor at Mosaic, and she's like, okay. And she starts pouring water on her and saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I mean, listen. This is what the desert does to us. I don't know why, though. Every group, 15 groups I've taken, almost to the person, they all say, that was the most profound place you took us. I had one guy this year who I was walking on the trail, 77 years old. And he's like, I don't know why I'm telling you this. He was Italian and he all of a sudden just went into his freshman year of college He's like, I never drank, I never liked alcohol or anything like that, but I was the first guy with the car, and my friends, they just begged me and begged me to take me to the party, and I didn't want to, but I finally gave in, and it was that night I could hardly see the rain, the fog, and I went through a stop sign, I hit a tree. I shouldn't have lived, and the five people that were in my car all died. And he's just like, I've been haunted by this ever since. That's what happens in the desert. And, 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 and that's why God loves the desert. I mean, we're going we're gonna to read this book, and I almost need to give you a warning right now. It's, it's, it's not a pretty book. All, all, all the ugly that, that, that's in Israel, it's, it's going to come out, and I, I have no other name for it than that. It's just... It, 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 it's ugly, and, and, and we're not going to just see it in the people, but we're going to see it even in Moses and Aaron and, and, and Miriam. And you're going to be like, like, what's wrong with these people? But that's what the desert does. It, it, it exposes us. It reveals all that stuff that we get really good at covering up and hiding. But the first step to transformation, we will never change until God first brings all of that ugly up that's inside that we get so good at when we live in Egypt at covering it up and hiding it. And I don't know why so many of us as Christians have settled for moral reformation where we can just conform our life to a set of rules and standards. Listen, God isn't interested in reformation. God is in the business of transformation where he wants to change us from the inside out where the only way you can really describe it is we've been born again. We've been made all together into something we weren't. He remakes us. And desert is a special place where the God of the universe does this, which is why the desert is an important part of the journey for God's people. For us today, it, it, it's that crucible where God's going to put us, and he's going to change us from the inside out. Now, here's where I just want to ask the obvious question. Why the desert? And, and how? Like, how does God use the desert? And I'm going to look at three things in the first four chapters of Numbers in which God, I think, does this, how he uses the desert to transform us. Look at Numbers 1, verse 1. Feel the excitement of going to this book right now. (laughs) 
And look at the first three words in our English Bible. They are tremendously exciting. The Lord spoke. The Lord spoke to Moses. Chapter 2, verse 1 begins the same way, and the Lord spoke. Numbers 3, verse 1 begins the same way. The Lord spoke. Numbers 4, same thing, and the Lord spoke. This is what Numbers is about. It's, it's the Lord speaking. God is always speaking in this book. I don't know why some of us aren't saying amen to that or even dancing. Because, well, Rabbi once describes his group of disciples. And he says one of his disciples was, was, was really eccentric. Uh, he, he, he was so eccentric that the other disciples kind of were annoyed with him. He, he, he was just, he was out there. He, he could be loud. He, he could be disruptive. Um, and, 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 and this rabbi began this, this study of Bereshit, the book of Genesis. And Boom, to start the study, he said, all right, can I have one of my disciples read uh, the first verse? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the face of the earth. And then God spoke and said. And at that point, the rabbi says, that eccentric disciple just yelled out, yes! Yes! And he just started dancing and dancing and for the next 10 minutes. And the other disciples are looking at him like, what's wrong with this guy? And the rabbi says he finally looked at his other disciples and he said, you know what? You guys will all be lucky if by the end of the class you understand why this disciple danced and shouted yes. When God spoke. This is what distinguishes our God from, from all other gods. Our, our God, he speaks. And when you think about the first time in which he spoke, he spoke at creation. His, his word went into the tohu bohu, into the chaos, and it brought, brought forth beauty and order. Everything was, was, because of his word, turned into shalom, shalom, perfect peace. And desert in our Bible is often described as chaos in Deuteronomy 8. It's described as a vast and dreadful place, this waterless land with its fiery snakes and scorpions. Jeremiah 2 describes it as a land of pits, of drought and utter darkness, uninhabitable land where no one walks or can live. But God is once again, he is speaking out of the chaos and into the chaos. In Isaiah 35 I think I have this on PowerPoint, speaks of the great hope of what God, when he, when he speaks his word in, in, into the desert, uh, what, what's going to happen. Maybe I don't have it. Um, I'll just look for it really quick here. In the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly. The desert will shout for joy. 
For your God will come, he will come, and he will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like deer, the mute tongue will shout for joy, water will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. How about this from Isaiah 51? Just Just as incredible, if not more. The Lord will surely comfort Zion, and he will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. A lot of us know desert. A lot of us have been in desert. Some of us are in desert right now. Think about desert. Think about your deserts. It's sad how we in the church, we, we don't talk about our deserts. We, we hide our deserts. We're embarrassed of our deserts. Like, why? And think about this awesome hope that, that what God is someday going to do to our deserts, that he's going to make our deserts like Eden. He's going to turn our, our wastelands, our tohu vebohu, like the garden of the Lord. And this is the power of God in his word. His word, it, it creates, it, it recreates. In fact, uh, the, the, the word desert in the Hebrew literally means place of the word or place of speaking. This is a place where God speaks. I love in Luke chapter 3, where Luke now is uh, going to introduce us to Christ being born into the world and describing the world in which Christ is born into, lists all the who's who of that wor- world, starting with the Caesars and the Herods and, and all the high priests, and then he ends it, but the word of the Lord came to John in the desert. This is why all the greats in the Bible, why they sought the desert, Moses, David, Elijah, John, Jesus, Paul, They went into the place of the word to hear the word of God with the hope that something on par with creation or new creation could burst forth in their lives and through their lives into the world. So many of us are wasting our desert and we see our desert as a waste. We look down on our deserts. We look down on other people when they're in the deserts. The Bible gives us every reason to celebrate the desert. If we can say Numbers 1, verse 1, about our own lives in the desert... That is precious, precious space. This is the space where God changes us because he speaks to us. And even though sometimes it feels like we're not changing, it it, it feels like God might be distant when we're in this place, we need to just have a hunger for his word. It's in the desert where God says to his people, you will not live by bread alone. You will live by every word that comes from my mouth.
that we ought to be seeking God, seeking his word in the desert, the way we seek food. Knowing in his time, he will turn our desert into Eden. He will. He says it. And that's what God is doing with Israel in the desert. He is raising up a whole new humanity. And it's by his word. And the Lord spoke. And through his speaking, he is remaking Israel. And he will remake us. The second thing that the desert does or why God uses the desert or puts us in the desert. Numbers 1 verse 2. These are really exciting verses. Take a whole census of the community of, of, of Israel. <laughs> Understand, if you, if you keep reading, this is the third census that God instructs Moses to take within the span of a year which in itself seems a little bit strange, especially since God doesn't really need to take a census to know the number of Israelites. God knows everything. So why this instruction? And then when you project in our world what, what taking a census might mean, I mean, when, when, when we count people, especially when it's a, a, a large number of people, that, that counting devalues an individual. This is why crowds sometimes can be dangerous because in crowds people become anonymous and very quickly this herd mentality can develop where individual discernment is thrown to the wind and it gives way to the mob. That's what Rome called the masses that it ruled. It simply called it the mob. It's because people to them were just a number. If, if a soldier dies in battle, there are numbers to replace them. If, if taxes need to be raised, well, we have the number of people to, to, to raise that amount of money. And this is what so much of counting does is it reduces people to a number, but that's not why God is counting them. God is like a shepherd with his sheep. And think about the good shepherd. When, when just one sheep is lost, he leaves the 99 to find it. And listen to how this reads. Take a census, counting each person by name, one by one. That's why there's so many lists of names in this book. It's because names are important. Names are important to the community. Names are important to God. I remember quite recently, someone met with Steve and I to say they were leaving Crossroads. And they said, no one knows our name. And then he looked at me and he said, do you even know my wife's name? And just because I so badly want to know everyone's name, but I can't, I guessed. I got it wrong. He goes, see? <laughs> um, that was one of, yeah. But <laughs> what if we're just a number of people? That's not what God wants. In fact, even the... 
take a census is our English translation. It literally reads, lift each head. And to lift each head was to declare to each person, you count, you matter, you're a valuable part of this community. You're not just a number, you are a name to be known. And see, that's how a mob becomes a people, a people who are transformed by God. God counts each person by name because every name matters. Not one person was to be forgotten. Now, I think there's another aspect to this. David in Psalm 3 says, Thou, O Lord, are the lifter of my head. And he's writing this psalm after, after great sin that he's done, sin that filled David's life with shame, sin that made David feel worthless to himself, worthless to his community, worthless to God. I mean, think about all the people who live in shame today and, and, and think about how often their eyes are, are, are cast down, their heads are, are, are pointed downward. I mean, I don't think there's anything that conveys the human condition more than shame. This goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and their shame. They were hiding from God and they were covering themselves. Humanity is steeped in shame. And this includes Israel. And David says, Thou, O Lord, you are the lifter of my head. And God says, I, I, I want each head raised. Yeah, the desert exposes us. The desert shows us our ugly. You, you can't hide it in the desert. But it's the desert where God counts us, where he tells us we matter, where he lifts our heads and he heals us of our shame. I'm telling you, this is where true transformation begins. It begins when, when, when you know a God who knows you to, to the very bottom of your being, all the dirt, all the junk, and yet still lifts your head and loves you to the skies. Do you know that God? Have, have you experienced that God? And God does this. He does this oftentimes in our deserts. And this is how, how we are remade. This is, this is how we're going to be counted with the righteous, knowing that one day we're going to be numbered with the saints. Well, maybe the most awesome aspect of the desert and how it works in our lives is turn to Numbers 2. These are just some tremendously exciting verses here. The Lord said to Moses, again, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. The Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting some distance from it, each of them under the standard and, and holding the ban banners on, on the of their family. And then the rest of this text, really, going through chapter 3 and 4 is... 
is, is the setup of the camp of, of, of God organizing them according to tribes and clans and families. And again, what God is doing is, is he's bringing order to the chaos. He's, he's bringing order to the desert. Now, let me just show you really quick what, what this would look like. I, I, if you piece together all of this, it would look like this. You have three tribes to the south, three tribes uh, to, what direction is that? To the west, three tribes to the east, three tribes to the north, and then the yellow in the middle is where God is. This is what you get in seminary. And, and to look at this is, is, is kind of cool because God, you see the order. Um, this is God's instruction. You even see in it maybe the, the, the cruciform community that, that God already wants his people to be. But imagine what this would look like. And let me give you a PowerPoint to help you imagine that. Imagine the next 38 years of this. All the tents in perfect order, according to the tribe, down to the clan and family, with God's tent being right in the middle. And that tent, it's not a church, that tent is not a cathedral. That tent in the Hebrew is called Mishkan. It means place of dwelling. That's where God lives. In fact, if you want to know what the Bible is about, it is about a God who made us and who desperately wants to be with us. He wants to be among us. He wants to make his home with us. And yeah, this God, he, he, he's holy. In fact, it, it, it's part of the problem that God has. It's, it's, it's not that God has a problem, but it, maybe a better way of, it, it, it's, it's the challenge that he needs to confront because his holiness is deadly to mortals. Psalmist says it, who may go up to God? Who may draw near to God's tent? Who, who can enter his presence? Psalmist answers it, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. This is why much of the next uh, four chapters are about God um, assigning a whole tribe, the tribe of Levi, to be priests. They're the go-between. Their role is is to stand between God and the people and, and make them clean and presentable to a holy God. But see the most awesome reality of the desert in this howling wasteland. God is right at the center. Living with him. And God being right at the center turned that desert into heaven. It turned the tohu vebohu into Eden. This is what made Eden Eden in the first place, is that God lived among them. He, he made his home with Adam and Eve. This is the, the, the future hope of the new Jerusalem. It's, it's what's going to make the new Jerusalem the new Jerusalem, is that God is going to make his dwelling once again with us. He's going to live among us. 
And see, Paul, he, he, he picks up on, on this imagery in 2 Corinthians 12 when he's talking about his suffering, when he's talking about that thorn, that, that, that's Paul's desert. And he, he's pleading with God, God, this desert is too intense for me. You need to take it away. But Paul experiences what God says to him. No, Paul, my grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in weakness, which is why Paul then says, and give me this picture again. Paul says, therefore, I'm going to boast about my sufferings, my weaknesses. I'm going to boast about my deserts because it's in the deserts that I've experienced that Christ, he doesn't just dwell with me. He's not just among me. He's not just with me. He says he, he's epi. He epi pitches his tent. He epi tabernacles. He exponentially is with me. Or think about it from this angle. I don't care what it is. Anything that's organized organized around something other than God, whether it's a life, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a family, whether it's a business, whether it's a politic, I don't care how organized it is. I don't care how good it looks on the outside. Without God at the center, it's empty. It's bankrupt. And yet you order a life You order a marriage, you order a family, you order a church around God, with God at the center. I don't care what you throw at it. I don't care how much desert it needs to endure. That life, that family, that marriage, that church will still know shalom, shalom, that peace that passes all understanding. I love what God says about his people, Israel, to the prophet Jeremiah, hundreds of years later. Those people that we're going to read about in Numbers, that we're going to be like, wow, I can't believe that they're like this. I can't believe that they did this. In Jeremiah 2, God's going to say, Israel, wow, do I remember our time in that desert. He describes it as their honeymoon. He says, how you, Israel, how you followed me like a bride, how you loved me with all of your heart, how you became holy to me. That might not be what we're going to see when we look at Israel in the book of Numbers, but that is ultimately what God sees. Israel is going to become something utterly, stunningly beautiful to God. Israel's never looked more beautiful to God than when she's like this love-smitten bride following God around in the desert. This is why James, in our New Testament, he can say, count it all joy when you, when you face many trials. Count it all joy when, when your life is in the desert because... That trial, that that desert, says James, it's going to grow you. It's going to make you mature where you're perfect, not lacking anything. Only the desert with God at the center can accomplish this. Or listen to this text from Hebrews 2. It was fitting that God, through whom and through whom everything exists, 
should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Even Jesus himself was made perfect through suffering, through desert. He knows desert. He, he, he knows our desert. He, he, he sought the desert. His life was a desert. His life ended, ended in the desert of all deserts. So why is it that you and I might be tempted to think that we're above God's way or even Jesus' way, that God could somehow just snap his fingers and say, well, once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. There has to be the book of Numbers, the space between, desert. A real hero to me is Johnny Erickson Tata. She's a quadriplegic. She spent the last 30 years of her life in a wheelchair. She writes this book that we should all read. We need to listen to people like this. The book is titled, The God I Love, with a subtitle, A Life Spent Walking with Jesus. At the end of the book, she describes a recent visit to Jerusalem where she makes her way to the Pool of Bethesda. I was literally there just four days ago. It's here where Jesus healed a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. This is what she writes. She says, large tears welled up in my eyes as I imagined blind people clustered against the wall and the lame leaning against the pillars. I could see paralyzed pe people lying on stretchers and mats, and I saw myself among them. And then I thought, oh Lord, you waited more than 30 years, almost as many years as the paralyzed man you healed that day to bring me to this place. I gulped hard, remembering the times that I'd laid numb and depressed in a hospital bed, hoping and praying that Jesus would heal me, that he'd come to my bedside as he did to the man on the mat, that he would see me and not pass me by. And now after 30 years, I'm here. I made it. And Jesus didn't pass me by. He didn't overlook me. He came my way. He answered my prayer. He said, no. And I turned my thoughts to God. Lord, your no answer to physical healing meant yes to a deeper healing, a better one. Your answer has bound me to other believers and taught me so much about myself. It purged sin from my life. It strengthened my commitment to you. It's forced me to depend on your grace. Your wiser, deeper answer has stretched my hope, refined my faith, and helped me to know you better. You are good. You are so good. And I let the tears fall, she describes. And she says, I, I know I wouldn't know you. I wouldn't love you. I wouldn't trust you were it not for. And I look down at my paralyzed legs for this wheelchair. She just described the desert. And how God uses desert to bring us to this place where he wants to remake us 
where he can lift our heads and heal us so that we're no longer not a people, but now we are the people of God, his treasure, a kingdom of priests, declaring his praises of the one who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Let's pray. And God, it was in desert that James rejoices and Paul boasts and Job worships because the desert is precious. It's your precious space where you draw near to your people and remake them and reform them. And so, God, would you please do that work in our lives. God, may we embrace our desert. May we find you in the desert. God, may we hear your word in the desert. And God, in your time, would you use the deserts to turn our lives into Eden and to turn us into your people. In Jesus' name.